Welcome to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to a new episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Today, I'm very happy to welcome and also a long-term business partner and an expert in crowdfunding as well as developing and servicing online games. Thank you for joining me today, Thomas Bidou, CEO at Ico Partners. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Thomas. So to begin this, uh, to kick it off, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, Ico Partners as a, as a company that you created? Yeah. So talking about myself first, I studied in the game industry in 1999 uh, and I started in the weirdest company there is to start in the game industry because I started at France Telecom <laughs> which is not you know the, the the most famous company for its video games uh, it was 1999 they wanted to develop internet and there was not a lot of content so a lot of the strategy for a lot of telecos was to say well if you know if we want content to put on the internet let's build the content so they had a, a subsidiary called goa.com that was specifically uh, uh, designed to bring video games. And the, um, yeah, that's how I started in the game, in the game industry. Uh, we were working specifically on MMORPGs at the time. And that's kind of like where my online DNA, uh, professional DNA kind of like came from. Uh, 2004, I moved to the UK to start up um, the European subsidiary for NCSoft. So yeah. working on games like uh, Lineage to City of Heroes, Guild Wars, Ion, um, and, uh, these sort of things. And in 2008, I started ICO um, with a, a colleague of mine, Diane. And we were just two people and we started very much as a, well, you know what, we've been working on these games, uh, online games that, that are these weird beasts and let's do consulting. Let's help people um, work on that because there was not a lot of experience around for how to manage an online game. Specifically looking at the European side of online games with all those countries, regulations, languages, cultures, uh, and working with a lot of American and uh, Asian companies looking at developing there. Um, and I could kind of evolve from that 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 first idea into what it is now today. Um, and the one of the original idea was we were coming from a publisher that was publishing online games, and we we'd been working with lots of games like third party games at NCSoft, and we saw a lot of the thing we were doing they could have done themselves, and the idea of self publishing lends itself very well to online games uh, if you can afford to do it because you are in for the long term. If you work with the publisher, there's kind of like, how do you align the interest of all the parties, all these sort of things. And you can cut it down. It's it's not a problem. But we saw the opportunity to basically us having experience in online game publishing to basically help people do that. And if I look at ICO in 2020, we kind of kept that core concept of helping people self-publish and giving people power to uh, to do a, a, as much of the the marketing, the communication of their games themselves, and and took it to go beyond online games. And I would say half the project we work on now are online games, and the other half is your traditional premium premium game on PC and console. Um, and a lot of what we do is 
empower them to do their own publishing. And so there's there's different components to that. There's still the consulting, which is the thing that started us off. But we also do a lot of like operational uh, missions for them. Like we handle a lot of communication. Uh, many people see us as a as a PR agency because this is a lot of the thing that 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 they see us do. But there's there's more than that. There's influencer marketing. There's um, handholding through a lot of the decisions you need to make when you start publishing your own titles. So that's kind of like how we've rebranded ourselves as a like self-publishing agency in many ways. And 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 we've been very fortunate to be uh, doing that for like 12 years now. And we're doing okay. We're growing a little bit. Uh, the team is uh, 12 people now, like, give or take, because um, some people are part-time. But that's, yeah, that, that's where we are. Cool. I mean, are there? Uh, you already touched a little bit on on the like the self publishing agency approach that you have right now versus like the the consultancy you began with. Um, are you going even more in that direction? Are you kind of pretty much stopping the consultancy part and saying, you know, we we all we always are operational to some extent? So, in many ways, if you go to our website, it doesn't talk about consulting; it talks about self publishing. But a lot of the thing we help people with is. If they don't need the operational side of what we do, then what's left is is coaching them, and it's very much consulting yeah. on uh, making the right decisions and uh, informing them on the last best best practices of the different you know platforms, uh, communication channels, advertising channels, all these sort of things. So we still do consulting. It's just now we have something that's a bit more comprehensive around what we do, and it's not just the consulting and. If I look at the clients we had way back then, uh, we still work with some of them. Uh, there's some people we've worked with over many, many, many years. And even if we probably don't advertise that consulting, like I, I have people on business model for their free-to-play games, for instance. This is not something that we advertise anymore. But this is something that we still work on with existing clients. No. Uh, so it's just like, yeah. How did it uh, feel for you, like moving from being, you know, I, I almost want to say active yourself, like creating something yourself in like the early days and when you created Ico Partners, more into like that external role and, and moving from project to project, I guess, a little more. Is that something you're always envisioning for yourself or is that um, did it just happen and you sometimes miss like you getting your hands dirty and working like on, on the game directly? Uh, and so when we started ICO, we didn't have a, a very definite vision. We were just, uh, we wanted to do something different that we couldn't do at the, uh, as a publisher with NCSoft. And we wanted to explore different business model, different kind of games. We, we didn't want to stay stuck into, um, that one at the time. Remember there was games that were uh, released as boxes sold in shops with yeah, a subscription right. model, you know? So yeah. we wanted to, to explore different horizons and other, other, other ways to work on the games. So we went there without necessarily like a vision or a plan of what we wanted, what was the end goal. And over the years, it's just being our own bosses, me and Diane, we just went where the flow was going. So when more free-to-play games were kind of like developing, we had the opportunity to work on them. That was part of the plan. But then when Steam became more, much more accessible and people had the ability to self-publish their game digitally, 
um, we went there as well because that's the kind of game we also like. And um, we're going to talk about that a lot, or maybe not a lot, but at least we're going to talk about that. Like crowdfunding, when crowdfunding became a thing, that's something I had the ability to... I knew nothing about crowdfunding before I studied ICO, and uh, I developed a very strong interest for it, and we developed expertise on it, and we started working on, on projects like that. So... I like, I'm a very curious person. I like to discover new things. I like to learn things. I'm not special in that way. I think everybody likes to uh, develop new new skills and, 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 and go deep into different topics. And I'm very passionate about the publishing of games. I like making games. I like being involved in the creation process. And yes, I'm not as much involved as I was when I was head of product for NC Soft Europe, where we would be having game design discussions and reviewing projects from all over the world uh, with the uh, Korean office and the American office. But I can still scratch that itch because we work with uh, people who are very creative. And when I will never tell people to hire me to help them with their game design, what happens is that whenever we work on the publishing of a game, game design comes up. It's part of the identity of the game. And so some projects we do get involved on the creative side by providing feedback, by because we know the people involved more intimately, and so this this come this is easier for us to bring up what we consider uh, interesting directions for them to take. So I'm quite satisfied with the balance we have. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it fits my my tastes on top of what I want to do, and and I I don't. It's like I never touch the the engine anymore, and you know it's still still part of what we. Um, we can talk about with with our partners. So if you get the chance, you sometimes do it. It sounds sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly. you, you touched uh, crowdfunding already, uh, and uh, as far as I'm aware, you're also having a talk at uh, DevCom about uh, about crowdfunding. That's correct. Um, so how did you see that market evolve or like that entire crowdfunding um, uh, movement? I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, there were, you know, some major successes on, on crowdfunding on Kickstarter where, uh, you know, <laughs> companies were formed. And then um, at least from my perception lately, there's still successes, but they're, they're not as, um, as, as obvious as the, the early ones or not as big as the early ones. Did you see any, any major change in, in crowdfunding? Uh, also who it is maybe the right thing for, um, or does it pretty, pretty much stay the same over the last couple of years so <coughs> uh, crowdfunding is 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 probably my number one pet topic it's <laughs> something i went into professionally because i was interested personally um, it's interesting because this is uh, something that a lot of people know me about uh, but in terms of the revenue we make as a business this is a very very small fraction of what we do this is a lot of what i talk about so crowdfunding, when it started to become something for video games, um, it was 2012, so it was a while ago now, there was that kind of like promise about the system is broken, it's very difficult to finance your game, but by going directly to you know the players, we can we can you know circumvent all these evil publishers and evil investors that don't understand games. And I think a lot of that promise or that 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 vision people had for crowdfunding was wrong because there's a few fundamentals into what makes crowdfunding work that that doesn't make it the solution for everything, right? This is, not everybody wants to do crowdfunding project. Um, in order to convince people to crowdfunding a project, you need to show them something. The early days where you could just uh, sell them on, on something on paper, the overly enthusiastic uh, crowds, they are 
a lot more educated and a lot more careful now. So that um, that was never really going to to work at scale. But you look at now, crowdfunding for video game is still a thing. It's still something that works. This is still something that you can take your project, present it in the in in, in a nice way, and get players to give you money to take it further, right? Has the scale of investments changed from your point of view? I mean, are we now ah. in, not in those high ranges anymore that we sometimes saw in the past? They still exist. Uh, so there's a number of things that have happened. Number One of the things is that there's more money now through publishers, and people realize that publishing is a, you know, takes a lot of resources, uh, requires like skills that you need to develop. And so when they ask for the money, they, they'd rather get the money from a publisher who also takes away that, that, that risk. It's one of the reasons like crowdfunding is like a lot of people who go to crowdfunding are people who have self-publishing aspirations uh, in, the, in the way they, 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 they see the project. Um, so there's a lot more, many more uh, small size, mid-sized publishers now around that, that makes it less risky than going into crowdfunding campaign. Then... Early access happened as well. Early access is also for games that are very systemic, that have a lot of uh, mechanics rather than content. They are much better. Uh, early access is a much better solution than, than crowdfunding because it's much more experiential. It's less about the universe and the story. It's much more about how you play the game. So being able to you know sell a version that's not finished one allows you to get you know feedback from users to get your money early on. And crowdfunding is a sophisticated thing in the sense that people want to see the game how it's going to be. The amount of work that requires you today is to go on Kickstarter. It's probably not far from the quality you need to have for a game that you go will go into early access for these, these kind of games. So if you have to choose between the two, that's, that's going to, to make a difference. Um, and last thing is that it needs something with an emotional connection. You need to love the project, right? And what we see is that if you have something that, that's trending on Twitter and people are like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. This is very, very promising. This is a good candidate to go to Kickstarter, but it's also a good candidate for you know people knocking on your door and says, do you want some money? Because we see your traction. People are a bit more uh, aware of that. So what that leaves for, for, for crowdfunding is people who don't want to take that money that people knock on the door, people who don't want to self-publish, and people who don't have like early access to the games. So the pool of, of potential game on Kickstarter is not that big. But among that pool, you can still do multi-million dollar uh, campaigns. They are, they, are more, they are rarer because the number of potential projects that can reach that big number are, are smaller because they, they, they yeah. go through these other routes. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't. It didn't move a lot, but we see Kickstarter in the news a lot less because they they are. This is a less relevant uh, platform for the one that you would see in the news, right? So the the big projects they 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 are somewhere else now. Um, and I, I would, I'm running numbers on Kickstarter, so I started getting interested in it, running. Um, like a 10,000 feet view on that ecosystem. And the average 
amount of money raised by a project on Kickstarter has not moved much. And this is where it's a little bit scary. It's like people need to realize that between 25 and 30% of the video games project get funded on Kickstarter. There is, there is their goal. And about half of them are below $10,000. So mm. Kickstarter is very, and it wasn't, I don't want to say it was never the case, but that, that window where Kickstarter was a proper solution to fund your game from A to Z, that window was very short in the history of Kickstarter. It was the very beginning. Uh, very quickly, it became something like it's a supplemental budget. It's also a thing that it brings money. It's good for your cash flow. It's good for financing and development of the game. But it also does other things for you. It's a moment to crystallize your community around. It's a good way to communicate about the values of you around the game. It's a good way to test your market, to test your marketing. I tell people that one of the best things that can happen to you with a Kickstarter campaign is to fail because then you failed your Kickstarter rather than fail your launch. And if you have the, if you, if you approach it the right way, then failing your Kickstarter will tell you why you failed. And okay, I failed because my game is not original enough. It doesn't move people enough or my game as an audience, but it's too small. And we did it too early in terms of uh, in our cycle of building our audience, you know. Uh, you can learn from that to basically survive. Uh, so so it's, it's a niche exercise in many ways that fits certain projects better than others. Uh, and for this project, it's a very, very good exercise. It's a... I think the, 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 the biggest gain is not in the money you raised. It's uh, almost all the time, all the other learnings you have around your own product and your own game. You know, we're talking about self-publishing, but the people think it's just like, oh, it's, the, it's my game. I know how to market it. But it's not true because the way you perceive your game, you need to translate that into a key art, a trailer. Yeah certain words you describe your game with. And if you don't translate this vision in your head properly into paper on something that's immediate, because you can translate that for your team with long meetings and, and, and big design documents. But when you do the marketing, you have like 30 seconds for a trailer. You have five seconds for a GIF on Twitter. You have these things. And, and so sometimes you have like a very clear concept of what your game is, but you don't know how to express it. And you need to go through that exercise. In in that light, you mentioned passion before, and it is very important to be passionate about your, your game. Obviously, that goes for whatever kind of financing you, you choose. But would you say that um, the personality part of presenting a game is even more important when you are on Kickstarter? So does it have an impact on how well you present your game, how much you are... Uh, I almost want to say like an extrovert opening up to the community and, and sharing your thoughts with them and, uh, you know, going mm. into all those details. Uh, is that something that is, is helpful or is it maybe even harmful um, later on? Also, when you think about publishers, I, I've seen that sometimes games have been funded on Kickstarter and then they were looking for a publisher and then, you know, publishers were sometimes um, challenged by, you know, so many promises made to the community and a certain way of working with the community that is maybe not very natural mm -hmm. to some of the more old school publishers. So I'd be curious about you your thoughts and on, on this area um so i think the the way i describe kickstarter is um it's always about love you know you need to have like a emotional connection with something to to support it before it's ready right uh, as a backer and sometime 
you love the game. You love the notion of what it is about. Uh, one, one of the game I really like to talk about in terms of, of Critical Fun Campaign is, uh, is Boyfriend Dungeon. Uh, so for people who are not familiar, it's a... Uh, Imagine like a, it's a Diablo-like game where you go into dungeons and you hack and slash and, and kill monsters and you have that magical weapon. In order to level up the weapon, then you need to go back in town, like in Diablo, but instead of, you know, going to the smith or putting gems or stuff like that, you need to take your weapon on a date. Your weapon transforms into a human being and then you go on a date with your weapon. Uh, and it's a very crazy, wacky concept, but if you buy into that concept, it's really awesome. And you're like, okay. oh my God, this is so cool. I can get the weapon. And you know, they have all a universe around that that's kind of like of, of that of that theme. Um, and it's kind of like highlighting what, what works very well on Kickstarter. Like people who, who see the product and like, oh, I really love that. I want that to be happening. And that can be translating into the visual of the game, the concept of the game, or the personality behind. Um, there's a number of campaigns that are basically carried on the shoulders of the creator because he, the person is very charismatic or they have a good following on Twitter or they have a certain style and people just like that style and they, and they, follow, they follow them and they support them. Um, does it make it difficult when you work with, uh, with publishers? I think you have to put yourself out there to succeed on Kickstarter. And if it's not you, it can be your game. So you can have a you have campaigns where you don't see the creators almost at all. You just see the game, and that's the personality that they follow. Is the the game has itself a strong personality, right? And sometimes it's the creator. And for the relationship with publishers, I think whatever happens, I don't think it's a big detriment because what you show is what they're going to have to deal with. So if you have a big personality, but you hide it, and then they figure it out later, then they will have to deal with it anyway, right? Yeah, so right. I, I don't I don't think it's a, a big issue. The issue is more something that you mentioned, which is um, over-promising, which is every single Kickstarter campaign um, needs to go through. Whenever you, you have fans who are excited, in love with your project, they will ask for more. And it's very difficult when you have these people who are outpouring emotions, positive ones, and say, oh, it's so cool. I love that. And what if, you know? Yeah. And like, this is where it's very difficult, whether you are a single dev or a team, to basically say, nope, I don't want to do that. Yeah, rather because... you come up with like the first stretch goal and the next stretch goal and another one yeah. because yeah. you want to please them and you see more money coming in if you actually have this. So, mm. yeah, I've heard that story from a couple of developers already. Yeah, and and the thing that's interesting is that it's very difficult to say no, but by saying no, um, you have a lot of positive power as well, and a lot of people can respect that. If you can say no and say, nope, I don't want to add another monster, another level, because then my production plan goes into um, in the wrong direction. I, I don't control it anymore, and maybe we'll have to postpone the game and all that kind of stuff. You can, you can say no to people. Um, there's a incredibly vocal, incredibly um, nice, but very, very pushy group of people. When you launch a Kickstarter uh, on a video game, they say, what about the, the Linux version? And <laughs> yeah. and when you're like, yeah, and there are some, and they're like, there's one guy and the second guy, and there's like 10 people asking you, and you're like, 
well, if there's like 10 people asking for it, you know, maybe, maybe I should do like a stretch goal about the Linux version. And then you do it and you work on it and it's more work. And then you launch it and there was like, you thought it was like, you know, 10 vocal people and I don't know, a person of that. And maybe there's a, a thousand people wanted it. No, it was, there were 10, yeah. maybe 12, you know, yeah. um, every single one who wanted it told you about it. And so you spend a lot of energy and, and, and mind power into, into something that actually in, in terms of the grand scale of scheme was probably not the best use of your time. Uh, depending on the scale of the project, obviously, but, but that, that, that happens. And so. It's part of the exercise that's a bit tricky is um, learning to say no, put limits and not of a promise. I see people making like small campaigns, like asking for $10,000, which is fine. You know, this is maybe what you need to make the music of your game or, or polish a few things. There's nothing wrong about asking $10,000. But then in their campaign, they say, and you have t-shirts. And like, this is, this is where it gets ugly because they feel they need to put t-shirts because... They've seen a large campaign doing all these sort of things with like collector boxes and keychains and t-shirts. Oh, let's do t-shirts. But when you make this kind of stuff, then it's taken out of the money you're going to make. You reduce your margin significantly and it's a big hassle to do these sort of things. Um, so you need to approach these things very rationally and prepare them. The preparation is, is, is essential. How much is the game going to cost? How much money do you need from Kickstarter? Make sure you ask the money that you actually need. Uh, sometimes it's better to fail than to succeed uh, on a campaign. Uh, good things can happen after you fail a campaign. I have a number of projects I worked on that, that got picked up after failing because a publisher saw it and it was nice and they yeah. liked it. And they say, oh, your your marketing was a little bit off, but we can fix it. So, you know, Kingdom, the, the game published by Raw Fury? No, I don't. Um, so it's a... Kingdom management game, side scrolling, you're a king or the queen on the on the horse horseback and, and you put coins at different places in the kingdom mm -hmm. to to finance it, right? To to develop it. It's a very good game. Um they've sold more than two million copies, right? It's a very successful game. It's the most it's the first successful game. Uh it's the first game that Rofu published, it's the most successful game. That game was on Kickstarter. And they asked, if I remember, like eight thousand euros, and they failed. And didn't prevent them to make a good game. It didn't prevent them to be picked up by a publisher and to be like a multi-million uh, selling, selling game. So there's, there's good stories on that. Uh, I mean, but yeah, taking it gives them yeah. a platform, obviously, to, to show the game. And there are mm -hmm. passionate people mm -hmm. about it. And I guess some publishers also use Kickstarter and, and, and some, some smaller platforms to go there and actually check out are there any interesting titles out there that maybe weren't on their radar before. Yeah. And it's not uncommon now to see some projects say we have a publisher who might be interested but let's they want us to do a kickstarter campaign to see to gauge, gauge the interest you know like how how big yeah. is the interest we think there isn't one well let, let's see how far we can take it um well i found this I've in the trained, past to be yeah. honest when i was still with the publisher i uh, or with the, with the online game publisher i uh, yeah. you know we had a team that was pitching an idea and i was like this sounds great but can we somehow validate that there's um, interest in, in that particular type mm -hmm. of game? And so we ran a Kickstarter campaign. We almost made it with the title. It was like very close, but <laughs> it didn't quite work out. In the end, we decided not to pursue it, but then the, the team actually took it and I think they're building it uh, on their own right now. So um, that's that's a very interesting uh, way of, uh, you know, market proving something a little bit for, also for publishers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are publishers definitely working on campaigns. Uh, 
helping the studio and say, if you succeed, then we'll publish you or we'll publish you whatever happens, but we'll increase the budget that we put uh, on the development and the, the marketing if we meet certain targets during the, the yeah. Kickstarter. So, so, so moving yeah. from, from crowdfunding a little bit more into the general self-publishing um, topic, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned in the past a, a couple of times that self-publishing is, is not scary. You know, people should, uh, you know, you, you can help them and, uh, you know, they uh, it might be the right thing for uh, some developers to do it. So uh, when would you describe self-publishing as the right thing for a developer? And uh, is there is there kind of a rule of thumb when you should try to go on your own or go with a publisher and try mm. to find somebody to help you? Yeah. So self-publishing, I like to approach it as it's almost like a state of mind um, as well as a strategy. It's not something that... So some studios self-publish because they don't have a publisher and it's very hard for them. And so some studios self-publish because they want to do it by themselves. And if you do it by default, it's very important to take a step back take a big deep breath and say now I am the publisher I need to do all these things that that the publisher needs to do very often studios self-publishing just just like well we'll make the game and then when the game is ready we'll publish it i.e put it on steam and push the button you know which is another recipe for success yeah <laughs> uh, obviously so I think it comes from Everything that goes into self-publishing is not rocket science. There's no like secret handshake. There's no like hard hidden recipe about how to do it. It's work. It's work. It's doing a certain number of things over a certain period of time and apply common sense on how best to do them. You know, community building. It's going. You know, on where is the com where are the communities for my game? How can I engage with them? How can I talk about my game? It's about social media communications and like, what should I show about the game? How often? What is something that, that's possible with my production pipeline to, to, to create in terms of output without you know, slowing down the dev? Uh, PR is about who's, who I want to talk to, who I want to talk about my game and where they are and, um, and how do they usually uh, talk about other games similar to mine and how should I approach communicating about my game? Trailers, you know, let's look at a bunch of other trailers and see how to best showcase my game. And a lot of, some of these things are very specialized, can get very specialized, but you can find help. There's like freelancers helping you for PR, uh, community building, people doing amazing trailers that are freelancing and going from trailer to trailer because that's the thing they enjoy. So uh, it comes back to allocating resources for it. And it's not unusual for a studio to have approached their development and say, in order to make the whole game, I need that amount of money because I need that many you know, months of art, months of code, months of design. But when it comes to publishing, they don't know, right? And they haven't planned it because yeah. in their plan, they were, there was going to be a publisher who was going to jump in and save the day and, and do all that sort of things for them. So the way I approach self-publishing is I think anyone should look at, should consider it at least, because even if your plan A is to work with a publisher and have them and all that community building, announcing the game, revealing it, you know, different trade shows and stuff like that, you don't lose anything by planning for it. 
and considering what is what should be the budget because when you talk with the publisher and you've thought about it, it's like, what's your marketing budget? And if you've never thought about it, they will tell you it's going to be 10,000 euros. You have no idea if it's a lot or not. Well, you probably know it's not a lot, but you don't know what they can do with that because you've not thought about it. So if you have like your plan B is self-publishing and you have like a rough idea of how much money you would spend if it was your own money, how many people you would need to hire, how much time they would spend, then even going into your plan A, talking with publishers like, oh, you only want to put that much marketing. How many events do you want to attend? And um, what's your strategy on the platforms communicating for like social media, all that sort of things. That puts you in a much better negotiating position with the publishers, right? Yeah. And if you if they all fail, then you can go back to your plan B and kind of like, well, well now we need to do it ourselves, but at least we don't have to scrap things together last minute to uh, just put it on Steam and push the button, right? Do you think that uh, um, developers in general are um, more educated these days in, in all those uh, topics like, you know, community building and uh, influencer marketing, um, PR, communication? Is that is because of that uh, the self-publishing is more uh, existing in the market compared to like maybe 20 years ago or so? Um, would you say they, they often have the feeling they can do it on their own uh, compared yeah. to in the past? Yeah, I think compared to 20 years ago, yes, definitely. Uh, if only because you feel like the marketing channels you can leverage, you have a control over them, right? 20 years ago, there was no Twitter and Facebook where you can at least build something from 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 a very small user base yeah. into a bigger one, right? And maybe let's take like 10 years ago or so. I mean, 20 was probably yeah. <laughs> a little, little far-reaching. Yeah. So I would say like between 10 and, 10 and 5 years ago, one of the challenges that the there's more and more channels to ma to master and it's like well uh, some people are not familiar comfortable with twitter some people are not familiar with or comfortable with uh pr um then there's all those youtubers and twitchers that you need to pay to cover your game i don't know how much it's costing and every single i would say year but every single six months there's a new thing you need to do uh, now you need to do tiktok you know how what what is tiktok how does it work you know do you, and you, do you tiktok I don't. <laughs> I, I don't even have an account. Do, um, do you do it with your uh, company? Do you have people doing doing TikTok? No, we don't do TikTok. Uh, oh, like, I guess it's about time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's so many things to catch up with. Um, that's that's hard. That's very hard. Um, we don't do TikTok, but like we do Discord, for instance, yeah. which is relatively recent. And there's a lot of subtleties into Discord on how to 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 make it work, and. If you put all these things together, it's, it can be overwhelming. On top of, I need to make a good game. You know, yeah. I need to make my my game fun, which is a hard problem. You know, um, so I see a lot of um, of of developers kind of focus solely on that hard problem, and 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 approach the problem of marketing and publishing into that approach of. If my game is good, a publisher will love it. And they will do that for me, right? Yeah. And there's a bit of a implied thing. It's like if my game is not good, then nobody will want it, and then I will have to publish it myself, which make it more difficult. Where realistically, it's not necessarily that true because there's not an infinite number of slots into portfolio in the publisher's portfolios, right? Um, and do our our developers more friendly with self-publishing? I would say 
goes up and down in terms of, of, of how it goes. Like five years ago, with the beginning of like Steam exploding and being super accessible, people were massively into self-publishing, yeah. but there was less, less issues with discoverability. Nowadays, discoverability is a bigger issue, so you see people pushing back on self-publishing a lot more uh, because it looks like a overwhelming big task for them to uh, surmount. And I'm also of the impression a little bit that publishers, um, not only the, the traditional ones, have changed a little bit and more adapted to the situation, but also new publishers coming up uh, more like immediately in the area that are catering toward the needs of those developers and, and don't mm -hmm. uh, come across as like uh, you said at the beginning the evil bad guys from the past but more like you know your friendly publishing partner um, pretty much working with you toward the same goal and uh, and, and yeah. that's definitely something I, I see over the entire industry that uh, this yeah. role is changing quite a bit so so that's actually very good and very bad it's very good because these people these, these entities you described these very uh, developer friendly publishers they are amazing uh uh, Modern Wolf, Devolver, Raw Fury, uh, this, this, uh, um, Fellow Traveler. There's lots of them that are really, really nice. You know, they, they don't necessarily, they don't want the IP. They, they help you funding the game. They do the publishing for you. Um, and that's changed the ecosystem a little bit because a lot of, of studios, let's say studios would be, okay, I can self-publish because we are really good and we have very good games. So, I need to get a good offer, good offer on the table from the publisher to 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 consider that. These 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 studios now have like very good tempting uh, partners they can work with. And and I would say just a side note, traditional publishers have got much better as well. Yeah. Um, it, it 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 kind of like lifted the terms for the creative side uh, across the board, uh, not just the new ones. But it's also very bad because there's that kind of like um, collective idea that I was mentioning before, like you can work with a very nice publisher, will do all the good stuff if your game is good enough. But Raw Fury cannot publish 50 games a year. Yes. Same for Devolver, same for all the others. And it kind of fed that vision that um, some of the indie studios I'm talking with like on a daily basis, um, that are very disappointed because they're like, well, all the, I don't know, five to ten like publishers we love in their head because they are the ones with um, there's the new they're part of that new wave of publishers. They all said no. So what am I going to do? And they are like at a loss because because they were a bit too hopeful, you know. Um, so like um, a friend of mine who says like hope is not a strategy, and <laughs> it's it's very true, important right? to yeah. So hope is not strategy is kind of like how I'm, I'm I'm approaching these problems and working with them to say well you know this is not the end you can you can you can do a, a fairly decent job on publishing your the game yourself we just need to plan for it and account for it and project uh, your revenue and make sure that that we don't we don't screw the company because the beautiful thing with self publishing is like once you've done it once you're in a much better position to do it another time. Yeah. You have a user base. If you put the right tools into place, you can you can contact them much more efficiently. You you become much more familiar with all the different channels and tools you have. The second game around, 
you should you you are you are in a stronger position. You can avoid all the mistakes you've done the first time. And that's also you know how some of the companies that are now acting as the like the more modern publisher have mm -hmm. have actually formed because they were doing their first game and then they, at some point they decided well we we might as well do it for others as well you know because uh, absolutely you know, we, we are we have all the tools now we know how it's been been done mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, you know if you connect that with the typical problem of creating the second hit for some of those uh, people that were original developers they might have you know moved away from that pivoted a little bit and said like hey rather uh, than us doing the next game ourselves why don't we work with talented developers out there at least that's what i've yeah. seen quite a bit i've seen that a lot as well and i think it's like and the more successful self-publishing studios we have the more we will have of these very dev friendly micro publishers emerge so it might develop in a way where actually self-publishing becomes a pure strategic strategy, uh, a pure strategic move rather than than a default because you didn't find anyone. Um, we are not there yet. Uh, but talking about finding uh, someone, I mean, you, you obviously you mentioned and rightfully so that uh, some of the publishers, you know, they or all of them actually have limited slots available, so they can't publish like mm -hmm. 50 games a year. So how can you increase your chances um, by, for example, already considering certain publishing aspects in the creation process? What can you already do as a developer to kind of increase your opportunities with publishers um, aside from mm -hmm. the actual game? Let's just assume the game is great. That's a very nice segue to um, a different topic related to all of that. So self-publishing and working with a publisher are not very different because both should strive to find a game that's easy to sell or easy to bring to market, right? Yeah. So if you are thinking about how can I increase my chance of working with a publisher, uh, you are probably going to go through the same process as, well, I'm I'm on my own. How can I make game the most successful possible, as, as successful as possible in terms of, of publishing it, right? And yes, having a good game is important, but a good game is relative to people. You can have the best game in the world for two people. It won't, it won't, it won't be uh, viable compared to a really nice game for tons of people. Yeah, right? Like the Linux version we were talking about earlier. You know, exactly. <laughs> Ten people love it, but you're not going to make any money with it. Exactly. So, so you need to think. In, you need to think in terms of marketability, in terms of how do you find the audience, and they, they go hand in hand. So, you can have a game that's really niche. But talking to that niche is super easy. So if there's like 100 people in the world that will love that game, if you have their email address, all every one of that 100, then your marketing is very easy. Uh, you know. And equally, if you do something that's like super mainstream, everybody in the world could like it, but, but marketing it is very hard because it's very similar to all the other games that are in the same genre, then, then you you actually have a much higher barrier of making bringing it to market. So I think to make to go back to your question about how to make a game, uh, a proposal of a game attractive to a publisher is showing them that you understand that, yeah. uh, and and not by saying like oh I've taken you know uh, a Diablo and Tetris and put them together and then 
everybody likes Diablo, everybody likes Tetris is going to buy it, you know? Because yeah. that's 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 a that's the wrong way to look at it. Yeah, it's a typical thing. Oh, the market is so big, you know, the market yeah. for bread is so big, so we're gonna you know create the nicest bakery on the planet and gonna be billionaires, you know. That's kind of a, exactly. you know the comparison. So with that. you need to be you need to look at your own project and like take a step back and rationalize whether or not this uh, go-to-market theory actually makes sense. And not to sell my services, but go to other people as well. Because when you are working on your own game and like, you know, that Diablo Tetris game is amazing, by talking to other people, you could basically take a step back and people tell you like, no, it's actually that little part of that Venn diagram of people who love Diablo and love Tetris are going to buy it. And it's like super small. And I don't know where to find them because there's no... um, uh, Diablo fans of Tetris kind of like forums anywhere in the internet so yeah I think if you can approach your game from you know looking at numbers of other games and don't look at the biggest game around you know if you go mm-hmm. into like a segment if you go into like hack and slash and say Diablo sold so many millions you look ridiculous if you say that game that people don't know about has been very successful, still sold 150,000 copies on Steam. And I think we can do better than that. You look a lot more credible than, than say, you're going to be the new Diablo. Yeah, I can definitely and, con- con- confirm that over the past couple of months. I've seen so many different project pitches where people were saying like oh and it's going to be like in Fortnite, you know that game became very big and it's like yeah but that's one of like you know thousands of games and mm-hmm. and always using the biggest one as a reference uh it definitely doesn't help you very much yeah yeah i, I love it people being ambitious yeah but you need to uh, uh your secret ambition is not going to convince anyone yeah What's going to convince people is what you, what you can realistically achieve. Yeah, and it's similar to like the influencers or something. You know, it's something I learned a, a while ago. I think it was even a conversation that uh, the two of us had in the past, um, where you're not aiming for like the big guys uh, with like millions of followers mm-hmm. because they might be too general interest. But you have a game that is very specific. You rather look for the ones with like a you know yeah. tens of thousands of followers, and they might be much more suited um, to promote your game and also um, are more dedicated and more passionate about that particular genre that you're trying to develop. Yeah, and that's the kind of approach you want for the game as well. Actually, you could you could actually use that specific example to say, okay, I think I think my my genre. I don't know. You want to bring back uh, an obscure genre to that that people don't play anymore, and say, oh, but there is this. You know, streamers they only play these old games, and then like my marketing plan is them because yes. there's like twenty of them. We all know them. They have good audience that are stable, not millions, but maybe, I don't know, thousands of people uh, watching their streams. So so my marketing plan is basically going to those 20 people, give them a bunch of money to do streams about my game. Hopefully they like it so much that they keep playing it afterward. It's even better. And and I have a very super well-targeted audience that will you know like this genre of the game. Much more realistic much more uh suitable to seduce uh, a publisher than let's go ninja on board and yeah. you know it'll, it'll, i have like millions of eyeballs that will forget about the name of the game the minute the the, the, the stream turns off you know yeah absolutely so what what role do you think uh, platforms play uh in all of that uh is it easier to do some of that for certain platforms uh, uh mobile versus mm-hmm. um console versus pc or even vr and like um any thoughts on that yeah. 
So, so I think a lot of the self-publishing trend is possible because the platforms have opened themselves. And when I say platforms, I, I, I mean all of them, uh, even if they are not all of them super, uh, freely open. So Steam is the obvious one. It's probably the, the first one you go to. Um, it's the lowest hanging, hanging fruit. It costs nothing to, to get there. Yeah. Uh, there's no vetting from Valve whatsoever. Uh, sometimes it's an issue, but you know, it also means that anybody can, can make that game. And a lot of the strategy I see now is if you go to self-publish, you're going to spend a lot of energy making a game. It's probably wise from the get-go to say, I will be on more than one platform. And when I say platform, I'm talking about you know, PC and console, not Steam, Epic Game Store. Yes. Right? And so if you know that, then maybe you can try to see how many platforms can you cram into your launch window. And maybe you can only do one, you do Steam, and maybe you can do two, and then you will probably right now do Switch because this is one of the uh, um, most popular platform for, especially for indie games. Uh, and if you can do more, maybe you can add PlayStation and Xbox. And if you have a game that's very strong, you can... I've seen indie games from small teams being picked up by Sony or Microsoft for the next-gen uh, rollout of games. And so the platforms are also, like publishers, they've changed their view on uh, their curation. And they went from... It went from like you need to be super lead to be on that, on my platform to you no know, we'll welcome a lot of people and uh, we acknowledge there's lots of different tastes and you know having a very small niche game is not detrimental to the ecosystem on the contrary it kind of like feeds the ecosystem and making it uh, stickier for a larger group of people so that's a good thing I would say like the the rule of thumb for me is Steam first probably switch second and then PlayStation, Xbox, in that order. But it's not something like anything about games. I think my number one advice is like, whenever you hear someone like me say, this is what you should do, take it with a grain of, a grain of salt and look at what's specific about your game. Especially when it comes from you, right? <laughs> no, just well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Challenge me. That's how I learn. No, but that's like that's, that's very good advice uh, because I mean the market is changing so so rapidly mm -hmm. and things are you know you have to adapt every single day. So I guess it's well, it's very true what you're saying. I'll give you an example. Something that annoys me a lot these days, which is there's two things that annoys me. <laughs> Number one thing is, oh, don't do PR anymore. It's all about influencers, and it doesn't annoy me because we do PR because we also do influencer marketing. So I'm, yeah. I'm not that fatty by it, but it's like. There are some games that are not good match for this type of marketing. There are some games that are intrinsically not good spectator experience, mm. and they don't sell well through uh, marketing it through uh, influencers. Um, and the other way around is true as well. Some games are very good for influencers and not very good for uh, journalists because of the nature of the games. So kind of like making like broad strokes about this is really how you do it now is um, annoying me because then I see people who start in the industry taking that as gospel and say, oh, well, fuck PR, I'll do... Can I swear? Is okay? Well, I guess, you know, you just did, so it's, we're not going to yeah. cut it out. It's, it's, it's all right. You can blip me. Yeah. Oh, now we won't. You know, 
to hell with that. Sorry, Amanda. The hell with that. We'll 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 do no PR. All all full steam. Um, no pun intended on on influencer marketing. Whereas maybe that game is not suitable for that. Um, and the other trend that annoys me, which we mentioned briefly uh, before, is Discord. Um, I think Discord is a great tool, but it's not a tool suitable for either old games or old studios. Uh, and I can see sometimes people getting into like uh, looking at what a specific in self-publishing studio has done and say, "Oh, you've not done a Discord. That's a big mistake." And like, maybe sometimes it's not. Maybe they exist on other people's Discord, like on a generous Discord. And also, Discord is not a very good marketing tool. It's a good retention tool for your existing audience, but it's really poor to attract new people. There's no discovery, there's little discovery on, on Discord. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of energy if you set it up in the wrong way. So these two examples are kind of like, be mindful about things that are presented as the recipe for success. And every single game has its own slightly different identity. Its audience has its own sensibilities that make it more suitable for being advertised in a certain way and in certain places. Um, it's a, probably, people want to be reassured. People want to have like, oh, I have a recipe, I follow step by step and I'm going to be successful. I understand that. Um, I think you need to apply critical thinking on that stuff because if you apply critical thinking and you have, have you apply common sense, then there's no reason you should be able to uh, tweak those recommendations to something that's very suitable to your own uh, unique project. And and that's I think that's where success is. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you on that. So, to my for the last part of our conversation, I would like to shift the topic a little bit. I mean, you already gave mm -hmm. us so many insights into you know self publishing and crowdfunding, and uh, I'm sure the mm -hmm. listeners can uh, learn a lot from that. Um, but, but and now I want to um, talk a bit about um, company culture and uh, and how you mm -hmm. shape a company. I mean, starting with, with yours maybe, but also from from a like developer point of view. Mm -hmm. um, what do you if if you want to have the um, you know diversity like you have in in the games you were talking about on the different platforms, um, and you want to create that in in your culture. What do you need to do? How do you actually get people from all over Europe to join a company like Ico Partners or, or developers? And as a particular side topic, how would you hire uh, right now? I mean, during a pandemic, uh, I'm not sure if you actually brought people on board in, in the past couple of months on, on your team. Um, yeah. It's a special situation right now. <laughs> Any thoughts on, on that company culture hiring topic, especially in, in times like these? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a very wide topic. I'm going, I'm, I'm super yeah. happy. <laughs> Super happy to talk about it. Uh, it comes with a disclaimer that um, this is definitely something I'm still learning every day, like on everything else, but but to some extent even more on that because it's about humans and yeah. humans are very complicated and complex and beautiful, but um, it's the, it, it's uh, something you need to approach with a lot of uh, humility. Um, I can talk a little bit about what I've seen at studios we work with and what we've done at ICO. Um, our diversity is coming from the concept we have. We want it to always be uh, pan-European on what we do. And we try to have as many European countries represented uh, in, in, the, in the company. Do you know uh, how so many we, you have right now represented in um, the parts? ICO we have. So obviously French, British, German, uh, Spanish, 
and uh, we have a Dutch freelancer we've been working with for a long time and my wife is in the team as well and she's Korean so um, so that's a good mix I would say yeah so let's say six is that right for yeah. 12 people yeah. so it's a it's it's a good mix um maybe five I can't count anymore the so the way we've achieved that is just um pushing for it so diversity is not achieved by accident if you don't proactively pursue having diverse profile in your team um, the chances is you are not going to have diverse profile in your team and diversity is very important so in our case it's like everybody approached the cultural sensibilities around um, so I give an example we work with people who have like a special operation in Germany I cannot assume whether it's going to be perceived the way they want to do it perceived positively by German people or not people in my team who are German can and we run into many issues where we will to raise our hands it's like that's great but this country is not going to be a good fit for what you want to do yeah it's fine either we do it in a, uh, we do it anyway but we know it's not going to be picked up there or we 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 tell her differently for that specific country or we change the whole plan to make it a bit more um, friendly to all different cultures. But if you don't have this point of view, then you're just blind to that. And when we set up ICO, there was a very important thing. It's like the identity we had was like, we are Europe. Uh, me being French living in the UK, uh, I was very worried people come to me and say, Thomas, Thomas, how do we do, how we do France? I don't want them to come to me to talk about France. I want them to talk to me to talk about all of Europe. And I don't want to be the only person they talk to. I want them to talk to a whole team about how to yeah. work best into the territory. And so we, re so how we achieve that, like recruiting, we, so we have um, a company uh, in Germany that whenever we want to recruit someone from Germany, we go through them because they are very, very good um, recruiters uh, called Ganjan Stock. You probably know them. Yeah, I do know them uh, well. Good people. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna charge them for the shout out here. <laughs> <laughs> we should. Yeah. Um, uh, in France, I put my job descriptions on AFGV, which is the largest website that that advertise in France. Uh, in the UK, we go through different networks and and, and push that. And um, and looking for diversity is also looking for diversity of uh, culture, gender, uh, um, all, all sorts of uh, walks of life. So we also try to advertise on networks that are specifically targeting uh, minorities because this way uh, women we see the if you see a job ad on a specific network that's targeting uh, women in games then you feel like oh Ico is putting that job ad there so that means they are probably uh, very inclusive in their culture you know whereas if you see the job ad everywhere but on those networks you're like I don't know if I don't know, then I'm not going to take a risk. I'm going to stick to the companies I know are safe. You know, uh, we're recording this beginning of July, 2020. Uh, there's been lots of stories about uh, places where working as a woman is not nice. You know, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. So it's extra work, I would say, and I think uh, company culture starts with recruiting. Uh, as you recruit people. Uh, 
be mindful about personalities and whether uh, they will fit uh, the culture you want to have. And sometimes that person who's like super talented, who can do five, thi- five things, different, different things in your team that would be super precious. But that person might be a bit of a um, uh, strong ego. Maybe you don't want that person. Yeah. Maybe your culture will be better by having someone else who has only two of those five skills the other person has. But no ego, very easy to work with, recommended by other people you know. Such a breeze, much easier. So, yeah, especially in um, smaller teams, uh, the impact oh, yeah. of um, people that show some kind of toxic behavior uh, on a team can be dramatically bad, you know, later on. Mm. I mean, since that's uh, the, the nucleus of everything. Yeah, and I've made a mistake, you know. I've, I've, I've recruited people who I thought would be a good fit and, and whose personality was, was, was not right and created a toxic environment. So um, I'm guilty as charged. This is hard. This is very hard. Oh, yeah. So uh, looking into at that level first is very important. And then I think something that's a little bit like corporate that that people think might be a bit bullshit, but actually plays a role is like, if you want to have a good culture, express that culture. Go through the exercise of putting down on paper the words that define the culture you want and share that with people. Uh, it's very easy, especially in creative industries, it's like, oh, well, we, you know, the culture is like we're all good friends and we all work, uh, the word I hate is family, but um, we're all good, like, like we work together and we work well. Actually, no, take some time, put a bit of piece of paper and it's like, what are the values you have? What are the things that are important to you? And tell that to the team and ask them, are they, do they agree with you? Because you might be surprised sometimes they disagree with how you phrased it because they you didn't consider their own background or their aspirations and the kind of games they want to make and by going through that process you also kind of like put it out in the open and make it a topic rather than something that's uh that they have to live through that they have to passively yeah. uh, uh be subjected to rather than something they can actively uh feed into an effect and change you know or if they don't want to change it, or they can't change it because of the size of the team, at least it's expressed and it can be addressed rather than just something that's uh, looming around and, and being uh, like a shadow on, on, on the work you do with everybody. Yeah, I really agree that it's very important to actively talk about culture and not just mm. have it there. Uh, and some people also believe still that you, know, you define culture in the beginning of the company, and uh, you know then people are reading that document, and and that's going to be it for the you know, the rest of the, oh, yeah. the company's yeah. uh, lifetime. And and that's also, uh, from my point of view, a very wrong assumption because it, it mm-hmm. constantly changes. You know, you bring new people on board, especially when you're a small team, and they have an impact on the culture, and yeah. uh, and it might go in a direction you don't want to go. And then then we are at the point we talked about before where you have to you know um, choose more dramatic measures and removing those people from, from yeah. the company potentially so uh, you know I, I love talking about culture <laughs> you could do yeah. this for, for hours because it's so important the, the other thing as well is like the you allude to which is the size of the team you know yeah. a dynamic between two people three people five people ten people are very different and and a, a certain culture style that works really well when you are a small team doesn't necessarily scale up and, and sometimes it's sad and sometimes you have to go back and say, if you want to keep that culture, then we can't grow. And if we can't grow, that means to make certain choice for the business. Yeah. Or or if you want to grow, then you need to accept that the culture, you won't be able to 
maintain it. I think if you look at some of the uh, toxic culture that you see uh, being criticized in the past few months, um, a lot of that stem from uh, not accounting for the size of the team, you know, and and sensibilities because your team is bigger, you have more varied people, more diverse people, and then suddenly the jokes you were playing around are really not acceptable anymore, and people didn't notice. Yeah. Not sure some of those jokes were acceptable in the first place, but that's not. <laughs> I think debate. they never were, and they should have been there. Yeah. But uh, you know, people are realizing more and more that uh, you know they sh they shouldn't have been there. Um, I just want to to follow up on that side question I asked about hiring during a a pandemic. Do you see any changes oh, in yeah. uh, you know in hiring and and forming that culture based on the fact that a lot of people are hired remotely these days? I don't have a lot of 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 distance. Uh, on that to be able to 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 say what's working, what's not working. But we did hire two persons through the pandemic. Uh, two people joined the team, and their uh, their recruitment process was one hundred percent during the uh, self isolation period. So um, we did the interviews. Um, our process usually have like three interviews: uh, one with the recruitment manager, one with me, and then one with the whole team. Uh, and usually what we do is like the last one is in person. We fly the person or we, yeah. the person comes to the office and, and we spend like a day with different people talking and we couldn't do that. Um, so we've, we've done the best we can, which was, uh, do these discussions in a digital format through, uh, discord in our case. And I think for us, it's been successful so far. It does require to keep an eye on a lot of the details that usually you would pick up through um, body language. And so focus a lot more, maybe have longer discussions and ask more questions. And I, I also see the interview process. It's a two-way street, right? You know, the, I interview the candidate, but the candidate interviews me as well. And uh, they ask me about, you know, company culture or... Um, the past uh the past cycle a lot of the candidates is like what is it what is it like to work at ico and i was like well at the moment it's not the usual because there's no office but it's like this and this is and for me it's like i'm pitching them the where we are as yeah. well and i need to pitch it right i don't I'm, i don't want to over promise but i want to send it sexy you know i want to make sure that when they come they say oh that's how thomas described it and but also like like make it like a, some some place where they want to work so the pandemic made uh, that a lot more difficult. You know, you can't pick up on the people's personalities as, as, as easily. So I think we've been more careful about trying to understand the people who apply for the job and and have them uh, go at extra lengths to describe themselves uh, multiple times in different ways, um, much more than we would do normally. Uh, I think we also ask for reference. I'm always this is this is this is more like a, a tick in the box for than anything because at the end of the day we just go for we feel that person has the skills we need, the right personality, um, the right ego, and we should go for it. Um, the onboarding has been also more challenging. I think onboarding I find more difficult than recruiting. Um, shadowing someone online is not the same thing as showing them in the office because yeah. 
Um, the notion of spending like half a day with the person, going through the tools we use, the projects we have going on, the different tasks that be done, and then, okay, I'll leave you to it, do this. And then the person basically after half an hour says, raise the hand, says, I don't understand that, or I finished, can I do that? It's kind of like that that very like a back and forth casual thing you can do in an office space. It's kind of like like gone and you need to have people be um, not afraid to send you a message on Slack or Discord and say, um, do the same thing, but digitally. And you don't know if the person is there because there's no there's no uh, visual cues whether the person is like super deep focused into their own task and you don't want to bother them or actually they, they, they are freely available. So I find that more complicated and it goes through again the people you recruit when they're onboarded basically build the confidence very early on you you cannot bother us because this is your first week every question you need to ask now because that then um you'll be you yourself more comfortable with your job much quicker and and that will be a better experience for uh for you and you'll be able to be uh productive uh, much 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 quicker I don't have super good practical advice on how to do that because we're still also trying to figure it out. But it, it's one thing that's good. Is it's 100% feasible. We can do it. Uh, we are doing it. Um, and I think, I hope the two people in question are listening because it's going well. So I can say <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, I, guess, I guess you're in a similar position like a lot of us right now trying to make their first steps and, and understand what it actually takes to onboard people during a special situation like this. So maybe we mm -hmm. can do a follow-up like, I don't know, a year from now and then you know share yeah. some insights. Yeah, and, and, uh, I, I think a year from now will, 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 will be great because we'll also be able like, oh, and all the stuff we learned from the pandemic, we apply to, you know, normal times, normal, quote unquote, because the new normal is going to be interesting. But but we are learning so much from working from home. We always had a policy where working from home is an option for people in the team. We don't have remote people, uh, remote remote teams. We have everybody in Brighton in the UK with us and go to the office uh, uh, regularly. But but we always said, if you need to work from home, you can, right? So when the pandemic strikes, we were more or less set up uh, quickly for people to, to, to work full-time from home. But... It's kind of like still break kind of like a taboo about the whole notion. And I think um, we learn a lot about how to work efficiently. We've seen people in the team basically say, I'm much more productive from home or I'm much less productive from home. Yeah. And we can learn from that and say, okay, for certain tasks, for certain personalities, maybe when 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 we are back into uh, our normal office hours, then we'll encourage more people to work from home when they do this type of things and work from the office when we do this type of things. And we are learning about us as a as a team tremendously uh, during that period. So that's good. And, and there's a side effect as well, which I love about the self-isolation. is like we do all these calls with webcams into people, people's home. So it's not nice because sometimes they have small rooms and it's all a mess of things like that. But makes all of us human yeah as well i love and that part I've, as well i've, I've and i i think it's good for everybody to remember like oh my coworker has a kid kid is needs attention right now kim's comes on the camera and you know we stop the call it's fine and everybody's super understanding and i really really like that because i hope this is like an, an empathy that we can take away from that from 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 these situations and 
and, and carry forward here so that we are a bit more nice to each other. Speaking of being more nice to each other, um, I wanted to uh, kind of conclude this uh, session with one question about something else you do. Uh, you're a board member of Women in Games in France. And um, yes, I was wondering what your take on, you know, the, the things happening the, the past couple of months, and not only the past couple of months, but pretty, pretty much since the industry has existed uh, in terms of treating women a certain way in this industry, making the bad jokes we're talking about. Um, what do we men need to do? And I, because I do believe it's something that we need to do in order to, to change that. So if you believe that, and I, I strongly believe that, that women are not treated as well as, well as, as men and the environment is not as friendly as it is to, for, for them. If you believe that, you, you have to consider... So this is not me. This is a friend of mine who um, um, almost a year ago had a big rant that uh, rang, rang very true with me because uh, I'm, I'm very uh, close to these topics. I care about them. Otherwise, I would not be part of the uh, board of women in game in France. Um, and she said, you, you, you take these assumptions and you say, I believe women are getting the short end of the stick, right? Yeah. And, and you see women in our industry being successful. And you know that for them to be successful is harder. They have to work much more uh, than their male equivalent. Then you, you'll, you are in that position and you say, I want things to change. Well, then the best person to be able to change the situations are the people in power. And if you believe that, men are in power. Yeah. See, if men are waiting for women to be the one pushing for change, then you are waiting for um, an underrepresented group with this power and who have to work harder to get that power and, and, and be able to apply it to actually enact that change, then you are actually working against them, right? By not, by, by letting them do it. So I'm, I'm all for empowering women. A lot of things we do with women in game is uh, I'm, I'm very much in the background on that project. I'm, I'm, I'm working more on long-term projects. I'm not a spokesperson. I'm not, um, a lot of the project we have is about bringing women to the front to show to everybody that there's very talented uh, women in our industry and that more women should join. But you also, I also need to take my responsibilities and I've, I'm like, I'm a man, I'm a person in power. I'm going to be the one pushing for that change. I'm going to talk to other men about what I think they should be doing. I'm going to talk about how to recruit more women, how to make more the work environment more uh, friendly and inclusive. I'm going to talk about uh, company culture that that and, and things you need to do in your company and the investment, hard money you need to put into making this possible. Um, and and I mean, this is since that, that discussion I had a year ago, I was involved before, but it's kind of like, was like, this is okay, now I'm taking my friend's position, this is my position. Men's are in power. We are the one who need to change the stuff and we need to uh, give away that power to women so we can change the dynamic. And that, that comes from a conscious, active effort from men to to push in that direction. And I think that would apply to many of our challenges in society right now that you know Absolutely. people in power, be it men or other groups in general, are Absolutely. the ones that need to trigger the change and uh, mm -hmm. not the ones that are uh, in the weaker position, I would say. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, it's true for um, every diversity initiative, 100%. Yeah. So with that, um, 
I actually want to leave it uh, there and thank you very much for your time today to uh, have this recording. It was a lot of fun uh, talking about all the different topics. Thank you so much for spending the time. And uh, obviously, I hope that uh, our listeners are enjoying this as much as I did uh, having this conversation with you. Yeah, it was great fun. And uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast presented by DevCom.Global. Produced by Sven Vossing. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by WeLoveIndies.com. Supported by Biodynamic. High-quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany. <laughs>